in this hour, those, this is a really, really interesting story. Um, there is a totem pole that's been sitting at um, a museum in Edinburgh in Scotland, the National Museum of Scotland, for just about a century now. It was carved back uh, in, it was carved in Northwestern BC, and um, it was taken by an ethnographer researching Nishka village life back in 1929, who then sold it um, to the Scottish Museum, where it's been on display since 1930. So think about that. Uh, nearly a hundred years since it's been there. It was the, the pole was carved from Red Cedar in 1855. It's a memorial of a Nisga chief. And so uh, the First Nation has been trying for quite a while now to get it back. They've even traveled to Edinburgh to do so. And now they've reached an agreement. The board of directors of the museum, of the uh, Scottish National Museum of Scotland, have agreed to send it back, uh, which is great news. So it will return to its rightful place. Let's be frank. It's where it belongs. But this is a complicated issue because there are simply vast amounts of artifacts that were either commissioned, taken, sold, stolen from communities right around the world and taken and are sitting in collections right around the world, including here in Canada. Uh, so the Western world is under growing pressure to confront issues around rightful ownership of art and artifacts. Um, as historians, historians, indigenous leaders, social justice advocates, and so on, seek to address historical wrongs that led to misappropriation. Um, and that includes lots of very famous examples from the plundering of art by the Nazis, again, to indigenous artifacts that ended up being taken from all over the world back to museums, often um, in European capitals back in the day. And, and it's, it is a challenging one because first you have to figure out who has what. Then you have to figure out how to what you want to do with them. You know, do you want to return all of them? Where do you put them? How do you handle? Is there enough money to be able to handle all the bureaucracy that's involved with this? It's not as easy as simply saying, "Give it back," because although that might be the case, you know, we don't know where a lot of these artifacts are. If we do, um, it's important that they be obviously be handled properly and uh, and given and and given the due respect and given back to those they belong to. Um, but also allowing them enough time and giving them enough support so that they can build proper facilities to house these items if need be. So to dig into all of this, and it is a complex subject, one I think we're just just getting started on, is Luann Neal, um, someone who has a lot of history working in museums. She's an artist herself. Right now, she's the program lead for the Rogers Indigenous Film Fund at Creative BC, and she's the recipient of the former award in Indigenous Arts. So she understands this issue from all angles. And Luann Neal joins me now. Thank you so much. Thanks for inviting me. So just your reaction to this, uh, to the news that this uh, Nisga totem pole is being returned from Edinburgh. It, uh, it, it is one story amongst many, but it always feels like a very big deal. Especially when it's totem poles, it's a really big deal. Uh, the, the museums that hold these treasures often don't want to let them go. They are a big draw. They are a big attraction for visitors to their areas. But they're also our family histories. And some of these poles were not acquired in a, in a very above-the-board kind of a way. Or paperwork has been lost to time, and nobody can prove that they were acquired in an appropriate way. So uh, for, for communities to have these coming back is so hugely important because they they not only tell our histories, they are very much a visual representation of our respective identities. And you know this well because you're from a family of carvers and you're a carver yourself, right? 
Well, I, I don't want to call myself a carver yet. <laughs> right. I'm so such a newbie to it. Uh, but yes, I come from a family of carvers and I've had uh, a really interesting range of conversations with not just museums, but private collectors who commissioned some of my great grandfather and grand grandmother's works over the years and uh, asking if they should be returning these poles to me. And so it always gets interesting because in their time, they were very much producing for a commercial audience. And mm. so they were poles that were commissioned and sold to people who asked for them, uh, which is quite different from poles being taken from villages that weren't so much abandoned as uh, people were moved and and all of their belongings were left on site uh, and someone came along and took them afterwards. So there's a whole range of stories that go with these. Yeah, I guess it, it, it speaks to the complexities of, of this issue, which is this idea of repatriation. And, and you know, because there are clearly uh, Indigenous artifacts all scattered all over the world now in museums, big and small. That's right. Of every size of uh, uh, and quantities. My, in my own artistic journey, I, I actually started in museums because I wanted to see what was created long ago. Um, before I got to know the work of my grandparents. And it was always amazed me when I would see stuff that, you know, I was even learning at a young age that shouldn't be out on display. It was very ceremonial to a very specific family or an initiate. So it, it always piqued my interest. And I think that's what has continued to pull me into this life of talking about repatriation. Yeah. And, and we, it feels like it is something that was uh, even not that long ago was quite a... Um quite a taboo subject in the sense that museums didn't want to really talk about it too much. Yeah, and um, I think that there's several pieces that that have contributed to the discussion surfacing and being and remaining strong. I think the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People was a big uh, helper to the, the bigger discussion, but also the BC Treaty process for those of us who are in BC, that actually contains a portion that speaks to repatriation. And that was from the Royal BC Museum and from the um, Canadian Museum of History. So, yeah, lots of other pieces of legislation and attention being raised to it. And I guess the Truth and Reconciliation Commission as well had a section that spoke about uh, this very topic and how important it was in terms of reconciliation, specifically, obviously, within Canada, where many Canadian museums have Indigenous artifacts uh, either on display or in their archives. Well, not only the artifacts, but I think what's all equally as important are photographs and documents, right. records. And the TRC very much spoke to the records portion of, of what's in these collections. But the thing with our communities is those records, those photographs, and the artifacts are all tied together. They're all somehow intertwined. So we can't talk about artifacts without talking about the actual records that were, were created along with them and the photographs that also went with them. So where do we stand in terms of um, of understanding how to approach this? Because I imagine the first thing you need to do is find out who has what, right? I wish it was a nice linear process that we could all follow and have a checklist to go with it. It's so complex when we talk about there being 35 plus different cultural groups, language groups, just in BC alone, 60 across the country of Canada. You've got entirely different protocols for each community. You've got histories that are completely different, um, knowledge base. Some communities were even more impacted by smallpox and TB and uh, had big declines in populations, which in some cases precipitated these collections happening. 
So there's there's all of that. But I think one of the things, too, is that in our communities, it wasn't customary to have museums. People own these things. These these are personal belongings. And museums have policies and the different policies of countries around the world have been that they will not repatriate to individuals. So we start to see the formation of systemic barriers that need to be addressed or at least discussed for starters. And then the support into the communities at the community level, where are these things going to be kept? Some communities want to build a museum, some want to build a cultural center or a cultural education learning center. All of those are options, but you still need time to build those and you still need time to research and bring those stories and their histories back together. So um, for the community side and for the museum side, there's lots of work both, both parties have to do. And I think that it's it's really presumptuous for, for anyone to talk about, you know, let's send in the letter and get that stuff tomorrow. It, it, it's so much more complex than that. And for the safety of these incredible treasures, I think that both sides really want to make sure that they do their due diligence, uh, really talk it through and figure it out, not as a delay tactic, but if you really mean to preserve these things, take the time to talk about them and make a plan for them. Luann Neal is with us. She's program lead for the Rogers Indigenous Film Fund at Creative BC. She is the recipient of the former award in Indigenous art. We're talking about repatriation of Indigenous artifacts. Uh, there's been a push now at last, and we've seen some progress over time. There are different countries around the world that have uh, laws on the books. Canada, I believe, does not have a proper law on the book when it comes to the repatriation of Indigenous artifacts. Uh, but one of the things I've been reading about a lot, uh, Luann, is the need for funding. Uh, for museums, big and small, to, to be to be able to access some money, specifically smaller museums, so they can so they know what's there, so they can start to reach out, or if communities reach out to them and say to know what you have of ours or what you might have of ours that could be ours, that we're able to have sort of a comprehensive idea of what is where. Yes, there's a lot of money that needs to be injected into this entire discussion. What I found in discussions when I was working at the uh, Royal BC Museum is that uh, smaller museums would often call because the the RBCM put together uh, myself, Nika Collison and Lucy Bell wrote the repatriation handbook and it was the first time such a publication had been put together and it was really intended to guide not only uh, communities but museums especially smaller museums and give them some things to think about and what resulted from the first year after that book was released was a lot of calls from museums saying we don't even know which tribe some of these materials came from. They were donated by private donors. or And again, with everything else, there's so many different variations and stories uh, and instances. Being able to sort a collection, get the correct First Nations names attached to them, and then begin that consultation with that community, all of that takes time and money and people power. And it's not just at the museum. Like I was saying about communities preparing for the return of their treasures, the community also needs support to have people hired working on these things. There's an assumption out there that band offices have all these people working for them. They do not. Many band offices don't actually have funding for more than five or six people. It's, it's very much per capita based and, and very small staff dollars come from the federal government. So there does need to be the funding in place to put the staffing in the right places so that those conversations and that work can happen, then the discussion around repatriation can move forward. Right. So it feels like we're still at the beginnings of this, of, of what will be a fairly long journey to see if we can't uh, return many of these items that no doubt belong somewhere other than where they are right now. 
in in lots of ways, I think we're very much at the in the first few steps. But in other ways, there are actually communities, and I, I've mentioned treaty earlier for BC. Mm-hmm. Uh, the communities uh, who are involved in the BC treaty process, many of them have been able to, under the auspices of the work they're doing in treaty, they've been able to carry out some of that research. So they do know where their treasures are. They do have the lists. They have been talking with museums. And that's where we're learning a lot about what we still need to do, because they've gone through and sort of pilot tested all of this, uh, given us really good advice, not just us, but um, all the museums they've been working with. So now it's just the willingness of the museums, I think, to be prepared to adjust processes and policies and hopefully advocate for some legislation. If if we think about how many of us, you know, growing up, learnt about different cultures and different places at museums, uh, I think if I feel this is a personal view, it would be it would be a shame to see all um, Indigenous artifacts leave Canadian museums in, in Ottawa, for instance. But you get the sense that it has to be done differently. How do you make sure that 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 these are the sorts of items that people can still see and appreciate in you know in, in a city like Ottawa, for instance, at the same time as as make sure that uh, it's done in a way that that respects many of the things that we now know are are very important when it comes to displaying these items or even possessing these items. Mm-hmm. Actually, that question came up very early on in our process back in 2018 partially due to communities not being able to receive things back right away, but some communities saying uh, we're okay with them being in the museums for now because they're going to, you know, it's going to take a few years to build a place to put them in the first place. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's that. Some communities also talked about being willing to clarify the ownership first and get that down in writing that these items still actually belong to the community in the absence of proof that they belong to the museum and that the community is allowing it to stay in long-term loan with the museum for the purposes of public education. So there's a real willingness to do that. But again, first steps first. Most museums, and I'll I'll pick on the RBCM because they are uh, a provincial museum, very much guided by a provincial legislation, the Museum Act. And that act is very, uh, well, it's pretty clear about, you know, what the museum's all about and, and what it does. It doesn't have an avenue for repatriation formally in that piece of legislation. The effort to do this came about more at the policy level than it did at the legislative level. So I think that that's something that needs to be looked at. We have to, because otherwise a lot of work will get done and, you know, and a generation from now when we're beyond retirement (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, just watching from the sidelines, we may see uh, the next generations run into a legislative glitch. So I'm of the view that if we can take care of it in our era, in our generation, let's do that. Yeah, let's let's spell it exactly what's what. Um, if, if you look forward, say, 10 years, what would you like to see? I mean, where should we be, do you think, on this uh, when it comes to repatriation and, and how it fits into reconciliation? Where do you think we should be in, in 10 years time? What would be a what would be a good pace of change? Uh, well, I would like to see that that definitely certain things have been returned home, especially the ones that. Uh, people have been working on already for decades. Uh, let's let's bring those to a close. As an artist, what I would really love to see and what I championed when I worked in the museum was the inclusion of artists from our communities in research programs. Bringing artists in, if we know that it's going to take this long, we have artists right now who are interested in creating replicas 
creating replicas that either if the, if pieces are too fragile to make it home and that they're going to stay with the permission of the community, if it's going to stay in the museum, the replicas need to be created and gifted back to those families who own them. And then also this just understanding, it's not just these artifacts and their aesthetic value, it's their uh, but like I was saying before, the ownership, which family, the stories, the names, there are songs that are attached to a lot of these and histories and rights and obligations. So it's the whole package. Um, having an artist go in and replicate a piece isn't just creating a mask or a rattle or whatever. It's about all the research that goes into it. And then that's what comes back. I've seen it in my lifetime where songs were returned back to our community and brought back into a ceremony. It feels like we're just starting. Luann Neal, thank you so much for your insight on this. Thank you.